Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. Uh, hi everyone, welcome back. This is um, another episode of the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics uh, podcast series that we're putting together. Um, the aim being to, uh, in a conversational manner, just discuss all the things relevant to um, some of the basic stuff that you need to do when you're providing obstetric anesthesia. And I've assembled a crack team, the <laughs> 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 same, same crack team that we had for a couple of the other episodes, got Matt Ruckler chair again and uh, Shilpa Desai. And we're going to talk to you about the exciting topic today of you neuraxial anesthesia for caesarean section, which um, is the final episode. And it sort of seems like it's almost like <laughs> probably, probably the one of the more important things that we do. Um, but we finally got around to it. Yeah. So here we How go. How do we forget this? <laughs> yeah, we didn't forget it. We just never got around to it. Um, and so the uh, target audience is people who have never done, who, have, who are training or learning how to um, become anaesthesia providers, uh, probably mainly aiming at people who are training in, in anaesthesia in the ANSCA college, um, but have never done any obstetric anaesthesia. So we're going to keep it fairly sort of try and Simple. cover everything. So apologies for those of you. I know we have been told there are some listeners out there who are just using it as a refresher, and you probably know a lot of this already. Um, and the, other, the usual disclaimer, this is we're just going to talk about the way we do things, but there are lots of ways mm-hmm. to do these things in the, around the world, and other people have different takes on things, and that is completely fine as well. The way that other people do things is also, um, what's the word, Matt, is also completely acceptable. Acceptable, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I struggle with my own language. <laughs> I know speak good England. Okay. Um, we're going to go right back to the start. Shall we talk about how uh, the caesareans are booked and categorised and the indications I've done too much talking so yep. now I speak <laughs> I know no, 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 how to speak now I need a break we'll, we'll give you New Zealand a rest <coughs> shall I make a yeah, start? yeah go for it so typically categorised into four categories from um, one to four one being the most emergent four being the most elective uh, one is a um, caesarean section um, where there is immediate threat to the um, mother or baby. Yep. Uh, category two is where there's a, um, uh, a threat to the well-being of the woman or baby, but not immediately life-threatening. Yep. Uh, category three is where there is a impact, potential impact to the mother or baby, not life-threatening, mm-hmm. and doesn't need to be done in the immediate setting. Yep. So they I need. Probably define so that a bit they, can't, they can't wait till term, but they they need delivery before term. I think, and usually most people would say within the next twenty four hours. And then category four is at a time to suit the um, uh, the patient and the cesarean team. Yep. So typically, category four is the elective setting. Mm-hmm. Category one is the most emergent setting, and two and three are somewhere somewhere between. And it's also important not to get fixated on the number to actually sort of, because uh, there's a lot of nuance. Uh, I like to say, people ask me things, what's the categorization? And I say 2.4 or <laughs> 1.8, you know, just, just to throw them off. Because there's some uh, degree of um, difference in urgency. Like, you know, there's a, 
um, you know, a ruptured uterus is, a, is like the, the most extreme category one, say, for example, or mm. there is a fetal bradycardia that is now resolved and um, so they still want to call it a category one, but actually the, they've given some tubutylene, there's no contractions, the fetal the fetus is fine and it's not it's not immediately um, life-threatening. Yeah, I think that's important. So there's a bit of nuance. Ca- ca- categories can change. Mm. There's a degree yeah. of subjectivity as well, isn't there? Yeah. And a category four can become a category one. For example, yeah. say you, you um, cause some problem with the spinal block and all of a sudden, you know, we need to deliver now. And likewise, yeah, category exactly. one can be downgraded for the reasons you, you mentioned, Roger, yeah. that fetal distress can settle. Yeah. Um, what about time frames? Are there any feelings on time frames? They have suggested time frames, categories. But it depends on your resources, and so that's the, I think and they the don't. Institution. It depends on the institution yeah. and the resources, and and also what else is happening in the institution at the time, and all. There's so many other factors, so I don't think they have any prescriptive time frames. Yeah, and that's that's my understanding as well. And I think that's important because you shouldn't be beholden to a certain time frame. It should be done, yeah, that suits your own resources and yeah. the individual case in front of you. And yep. these decision to delivery intervals. You know, they're good to look at from a sort of benchmarking to be able to see how your teams are working. But my understanding of categorization is really for communication. So you yeah, can communicate right. across different teams of different health professionals. And then you can use that to look back to see actually how you are doing in terms of your deliveries. Yep. Okay. Um, so discussion of with patients for uh, consent and just um, the sort of things you need to touch on. Uh uh, when you're planning a neuraxial anaesthetic for caesarean, so you've got the patient, you've decided you're going to do a neuraxial. Um, what what sort of things do we do? You guys talk about? I feel like what should we bring up? Yeah, we've we've covered this before with the labour epidural. We have a little bit, podcast. but I think we should re- do repetition because um, some people may not listen to the other podcasts, and it's probably repetition is good. But the same thing. This is probably almost. Almost the same, isn't it? Yep. Um, should I start talking mm. a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so I think it depends on the urgency of the neuraxial that we're providing. So whether it's a Category 1 um, or a Code Blue cesarean section versus an elective cesarean section. But there's definitely certain um, key aspects of that consent process that we want to get across to the patient. Um, so in a very simple way, explaining to them that uh, we'll be sighting a needle in their back between the sort of spinous processes, um, injecting some medication to help them get comfortable um, in layman's terms. Um, and then in terms of um, consent, you know, there's whether whether we are allowed to sit the patient up or is this something we're going to be doing in a lateral position as well? Um, and that's more in discussion with the obstetricians, um, whether they're happy for us to sit the patient up. Um, and then... I think the the most important thing is just a quick consent process of what this actually entails um, and what they're going to feel. Um, and so, if I if I use a, a spinal anaesthetic as an example, you know, initially it'll be the the local anaesthetic infiltration, um, and then they may feel a bit of pressure, and then we um, we inf- uh, inject the medications, the local anaesthetic, uh, to be exact. Um, and then the the risks, I guess, associated with that. So, um, you know, shivering, um, itching may ha- may occur as well. Most importantly, the hypotension is the the first thing I talk to them about. 
Um, and I always, I always tell them that you know they they might feel nauseated before our blood pressure reading can actually detect a hypotension, and so um, mm-hmm. really clear communication with um, the anaesthetic team. Um, anything else? More? Yeah, difficulty insertion. Yeah, true. Um, so oh, say to insert. Yeah, yes. so. Sometimes it's difficult to get it in, but don't worry, we have some tricks, but sometimes we, we, we might have to change to a general anaesthetic. I always like to mention that you might that, uh, uh, we might not get it in or it might not work properly and that you, have, you might have to have a general anaesthetic. Yeah. Um, it's not the end of the world. We've, I think we've talked about this recently, that, you know, setting expectations. Um, uh, and you've still got to talk about things like dural puncture headaches yeah. and... Um, um, you no know, injuries. rare, very rare events like um, infection and bleeding and hematomas and um, neurological injuries, yeah. um, although they are rare. Um, and then the other thing is like um, managing their expectations of the sensation that they're going to feel during the cesarean, because obviously, as we all know, um, it's not an absence of sensation, it's just an absence of pain for sensation. And there's a lot of pushing and pulling and stretching and and then uh, even on top of that, getting into a bit more detail about the fact that there are sometimes patients who will feel a some discomfort but will, will not be at a level that they need a general anaesthetic um, and that, that is, does, does happen. And I, I would agree. I think that's something we should all be doing. We probably haven't been doing it quite so well given yep. that we've all experienced patients that have unfortunately experienced pain. Yeah, and some of which have had a general anaesthetic, some haven't. Some perhaps might have wished they'd had one. Yep. Um, but I think it's something we should tell everybody that is it's a possibility, and we shouldn't couch it in terms such as failure. We should say you may have discomfort or pain. It's just yeah, I just try and say. But that you know, we will do our best to avoid it. But we can provide a general anaesthetic. I mean, I think we're going to talk yeah. about pain during cesarean mm-hmm. sections yeah, yeah. because we've all experienced it. Um, as as. Um, well, maybe we haven't all experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly looked after people who yep. have unfortunately had, yeah. had discomfort. I think if you do enough, because uh, what's the uh, incidence of conversion <coughs> to general anaesthetic? It depends on what technique, in your actual technique you're using, but um, it's a lot higher than people think or re- re- realise, I reckon. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's definitely <coughs> a difference between an epidural top-up versus um, a spinal anaesthetic, and that also depends on an elective procedure compared to, you know, an emergency yeah. procedure. But so. I can still think of plenty of elective seizures where the uh, regional has not done the trick and we've mm-hmm. had to do a general anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, I mean, we can all think of them, can't we? So yep. we should yep. be yep. speaking about them. Yep. And um, I think if I was lying on the table having an operation done under a spinal anaesthetic, it will be going through my mind. Yeah. Is this going to work? And, and um, sometimes, well, it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, you, you do hear from time to time is someone saying, you know, you'll feel putting pushing pressure you won't feel pain. And then half an hour later, <laughs> you feel some pulling pain. Yeah, so it's something yeah. we... we I, yeah. I, I believe really quite strongly that we should be talking about this. Yeah, and, I think But not, not in a negative sense, you know, that's yeah. why we're anaesthetist. We're there with the anaesthetic machine behind us yeah. Yeah. that we can deploy if we need to. Yeah, that's correct. I think you need to maintain the... Um, maintain the, 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 their confidence in the general anaesthetic as well because mm. sometimes there's this um, inappropriate sort of vibe for the want of a better word that the general anaesthetic is a bad for you when you're having your caesar mm. um it's not as we all know we can all give general anaesthetics for, and it's mm. very safe and it's a very good 
anesthetic, isn't it? It is, yeah. And um, letting them know that it's not a that if you have to have a general anesthetic, it's going to be it's a good anesthetic and it's safe and we will look after you, um, and everything will be fine. You know, we're, we're there to look after mm-hmm. you. Sort of couching things in positive terms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially in the event that you know your your axial technique fails or is not yeah. uh, uh, adequate, um, they shouldn't feel like. It's it's a bad thing to have general anaesthetic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it just these things happen. Yep, you know. And, and and likewise for us, we shouldn't feel it's a bad thing for us to have to give an anaesthetic if we yeah. feel it's warranted. Yep. And I, and I think that yep. has been a problem when people have looked at institutions' rates of general anaesthesia and seen it potentially as a marker of a failure. You know, we use that term "fail block." Yeah, we shouldn't use that term. And um, you know whether we should be, you know, using other terminology, but. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes you know we we should perhaps be doing more general anaesthetics then. <laughs> yep. Then we are. It's just an option, isn't it? It's mm. an it's an option in our. <clears throat> so whenever so we digress so on, on that point, we are digressing. <laughs> but on that point, when you're positioning patients on the table <clears throat> after you've done a region, you should always in the back. You should always be positioning them in, in a manner that you know that the, mm. that you may need to change for general anaesthetic. All right. And just a segue there, Roger, because it reminds me of yep. the the nap. Four. One of the naps. One of one of the naps. Which I think it was nap four airway, 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 airway complications and the the obstetric chapter of the nap four. Yep. And for those out there, the nap four was the national anaesthesia, um, sort of national audit project of the Royal College of Anaesthetists, looking at major complications of airway management. And to get in the nap four book, you had to have a pretty major complication. Yeah. I.e., a hole in the neck, an admission to ICU. Or something else. It was. It wasn't just a failed intubation. So these are yep. you know, proper bad outcomes. But the obstetric chapter was very small. Um, yeah. But there was a sort of theme running through it that every case that was in there was with a general anaesthetic, where that wasn't the mode of anaesthesia planned from the outset. Yeah. I.e., they started with a regional block, and it failed. So you then, you know, upgrading to a general anaesthetic. Yeah during a case and and that's difficult. You know, because you may have someone in pain with an abdomen open with a drape up inadequate positioning so i completely agree roger always you know presume your block might fail and yep. think you know is this a good position to um yeah you know look after the airway um all right so next thing um intravenous access so probably seems like it seems like a basic thing but <laughs> yeah. obviously you need to have uh, intravenous access before you give an anesthetic what are we usually this is i mean this is a bit of a gray zone but usually in our practice what are we like no. So at King Eddie's, we usually insert a 16-gauge um, Venflon or Insight, but usually Venflon. Yeah. So we're worried about bleeding, aren't we? Mm. And so we don't want to start on a big intra-abdominal operation and we don't have a good IV. We're going to be this – is, this is the way I think about it. We're going to have a patient who could potentially bleed a lot, so we need to have a large enough cannula that we can resuscitate them. Um, we're giving them vasopressors. Um, I mean fluids, and we just want to, we want it to be a really reliable venous access mm-hmm. device that's just not going to fail. You know, last thing we want to do is suddenly give them a spinal, and suddenly the blood pressure is sixty over forty, and they've got a pink cannula that's tissued, and <laughs> we can't give them vasopressors. You know, so you want a really good IV, um, I guess, and, a, and a, a bigger rather than smaller. Yeah, but there are plenty of people who do. You know, Caesareans with cannulas smaller than sixteen gauges, so that's open to debate. But basically, you should be thinking about that. And then I, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, basically, they, they get put anywhere in the arm. But this is probably of less importance. But I do think about 
the fact that the mother is going to be holding a baby and moving around, they're awake, they're not like an asleep patient, so so securing it properly and even you know having it in the middle of the forearm rather than the antecubital fossa or the mm-hmm. back of the hand is maybe a bit nicer for them afterwards. I don't know. Any yeah, other comments? Yeah, and also if you've got um, an oxytocin infusion running, if it yeah. is in the antecubital fossa, it will keep alarming. Yep. And on a good place. Yeah, look, I would completely agree, Roger. A large ball cannula um, and sometimes more than one if you're yes. anticipating blood yep. loss, even yep. as an elective seize of, uh, say, low-line placenta or... Yep. So you got to so, so take some time <coughs> to um, you know get a good cannula in before you start. Yeah. Don't be in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah. And also secure it quite well, Roger. Because yeah. I have heard they can come out. <laughs> yes, I have heard personally. <laughs> I'm not going to get sucked into lots of anecdotes. <laughs> but these anecdotes are worth it sharing. It's totally worth sharing. Yes. Well, uh, the the other anesthetist who was with me at the time is not here, so we won't talk about it today. Yeah. <laughs> I'll share. I will share that in another episode in the future. Okay, um, what are the four regional techniques? People probably have four. There's four different types of neuraxial techniques you can use for cesarean. Well, the listeners are frantically counting. I'll on start the hand. with I spinal. Heard of spinals. Okay, <laughs> so CSE. Yep. So combined spinal epidural. Yep, combined spinal epidural. And you could subdivide the CSE into a um, single space CSE yep. or a separate space CSE. Oh, that's. Then we're getting up to five. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where you do a, like a, a thoracic epidural and a lum, uh, lumbar spot, single shot spinal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Epidural top up is the other one. So obviously, women who have an epidural in situ for labour analgesia who come around the theatre, we use that um, to provide um, anaesthesia. And then what's the other one, which is very, it's probably or You could do a de novo epidural yep. for an elective Caesar yep. and yep. top up. That's right. We do that for patients where we want a really slow onset block, mm-hmm. usually put women with um, cardiac disease and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, we're up to six now. <laughs> <laughs> the final one is intrathecal catheter. So occasionally you have patients who have had an accidental dural puncture who have an intrathecal catheter or you decide to put an intrathecal catheter in, which mm-hmm. is done in some centres, um, but, oh, not, but not really done here. We don't do it, but we've I know. We've sort of dabbled over the years. We've dabbled. We've been in the cases. odd cases, and there are some commercially yeah. available. Yeah, there are, um, so there are commercial narrow gauge. Yeah, there are commercially kits. available kits, or you obviously you just um, if it's an accidental one and you've placed a catheter, you use an epidural kit. Mm. And those topping those up can be a bit um, difficult to know exactly how much you're going to give and to avoid high blocks and to get a block that works. But we won't go into that. No, I think we talked about that in the dural puncture. Episodes. So if anyone wants to hear about that, um, go and listen to that podcast. All but right. globally, you know, the most common region <coughs> technique for a cesarean section is a single shot spinal. Yep. yep. I would think. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even in, uh, in our hospital here, what would you say about eighty percent of them mm-hmm. now? Yep. There used to be a lot more combined spinal epidurals performed yeah. previously, and now yep. I think there's just. And we still do a few. Yep. 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 Okay. Should we talk about tips for placing? them let's talk about a single shot spinal and just how to perform it you know, the, the things we do that we talk about and how we do it i think the most important thing i want to stress about is the importance of positioning because yep. anytime i have had difficulty and i've had um some colleague come to help me it's usually been um i guess inadequate positioning or um yeah patient moving yep mm, agree <coughs> And you can position them in different ways. Yep. So sitting up or on the lateral position. Yep. 
We typically go sitting, don't we? Yeah. I think it probably is easier sitting. Yeah, yeah I agree. And I think um, Roger shared uh, the positioning device image on um, the on the website, but um, yep. you didn't, didn't you? I don't think anywhere else except uh, in WA anyway, I don't know of any other hospitals that have one yet, yep. although I'm working on Osborne Park Hospital. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, having, not getting very far. So traditionally, um, if you have a positioning device, um, that's probably better. But traditionally, people are curled up over a pillow with a angry banana, uh, prawn, prawn, like a cat, angry cat, I don't know, whatever description, where they're pushing their lumbar spine in a com- com- convex or com- yeah, convex manner <laughs> towards you. <laughs> if you go back to, basics, to basic geometry at school here, yeah? um, to try and open up the back. And you're trying to have them sitting on the... Usually, a way often beds have a little split in them to allow the sort of the, the foot of the bed to mm. go down. So try not to have them sitting on anything that's going to make their back twisted. Um, anything else? Uh, on the chest. Um, yeah, and position Seat yourself. On. Yes, comfortably. Oh, yes. Yeah, ergonomically. Absolutely. Ergonomically. Yeah. With good lighting. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I feel like we're in a rush. So, you know, it be in the labour ward for labour epidurals or in theatre and you think you can get away with, um, you know, just rushing along. But those are the times where if you're not positioned yourself properly or the patient properly is when you actually take a, a lot longer than if you just yeah, t- right. take yeah, a few extra seconds to mm-hmm. position everything properly. Yeah. No, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Language. What, um, so... Uh, should we talk about um, the language we use when we're infiltrating and doing the block? Or should we... S- Typically English. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or if the patient doesn't speak English and you do speak their language, that would yeah. be good. <laughs> we're talking about the... Positivity. Ah, okay. Positivity, right. yes. Sorry. Communication. Yeah. Communication, yeah. Yep. So explaining what you're going to do. Yeah, basically, um, we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but talk about lots of positive yeah. things so, so don't don't use negative language like this is going to hurt or don't move and mm-hmm. um, you talk about you know I'm going to put some local anesthetic in and it's going to spread around and make everything numb so it's a great this is great stuff and you'll f- give it a little bit of time to work and when it does it's going to be amazing and I know that you're not going to mm-hmm. you I know that when you're having your contractions yeah because some of these women who come to theater are uh, contracting although it's more common in epidural than labor. I know you're going to be able to hold still. You're going to be great, you know, that sort of thing. And I think yeah. you start that communication <coughs> before you're sort of sitting behind the patient as yep. part of your consent. Yeah. Just to get that confidence that it's going to be okay. Um, so needles, needles and uh, drugs for single shot spinals. What are the main um, important elements of choosing your spinal needle? Um. So we've, I would use anywhere between a 25 or a 27 gauge spinal needle um, and that would depend on, for me, whether this was a code blue slash category one caesarean section, I would tend to use a, a 25 gauge, um, just the, the ease and the, yep. I just know what it feels like compared to a 27 gauge. Um, and a pencil point needle, so there's lots of different brands out there. Yeah, so some sort of a traumatic tip. Yeah, there are yeah. still probably it's probably it's rare to find the, the cutting needles, but mm-hmm. there were, there were in, in the past. Certainly, if you used to go to do a lumbar puncture and um, ED, mm-hmm. some like that, there are these um, cutting needles which are not pencil point needles. Uh, but most anaesthetic departments should have the correct type of needle. Yep. Yep. 
and this is to minimise the uh, risk of a dual uh, puncture headache. Um, so what what makes you choose between say a twenty five gauge, which is a bit bigger, than over a twenty seven gauge? Oh, I'm interested to hear you guys. Um, as I said, one of my biggest things is the the rapidity of how quickly I need to insert the spine. Yep. So if it was a code blue um, cesarean section, um, I would always opt for a twenty five gauge. I just know what the what it feels like yep. in my hands compared to a twenty seven gauge. Um, so you can you feel the pop when it goes through the dura, yeah. and the CSF flows back much quicker as well. It does, doesn't it? yeah. So you can, it's easier to aspirate, and you see yeah. that. See, you can see you're in the right spot. Um, what drugs would you use? Matt? Is there another any any other reason you'd use a twenty five or twenty seven, Matt? Um, I, I well, the only thing I would add would be yeah. that if you if you do train yourself to use the narrow gauge needles. And they go more narrow than 27, apparently. You can get 29-gauge wow. needles. <coughs> um, but if you do start using a 27-gauge needle, say, for elective yeah. caesarean yeah. sections, which, which personally I do now for, for all yeah. of them, the, the days you pick up a 25-gauge for the reasons you say, shop, yeah. uh, when you want to get it in quickly, yeah. it feels like you're holding a 2 needle almost. And you, you feel like <laughs> uh, you can get through anything. You're, yeah. You kind of retrain your brain and yeah. hands. yeah. And all of a sudden, it, so certainly that's an advantage I've found is yep. that um, by persevering with these very narrow gauge needles, um, it kind of resets your yeah. confidence okay. with you're getting right. in quickly with a 25 gauge, which still is a very narrow <laughs> gauge needle. Yeah. It just feels bigger than it yep. used to. Yep. So I use a 27, you're right, I use a 27 mm-hmm. for all my elective cesarean sections, but um, yeah, I feel... And look, you know, the, you have to ask yourself, well, why are we bothering doing this? Uh, is there much difference in, in outcome in terms of postural puncture headache? And the, the evidence is a little bit grey. Yep. Uh, but intuitively, it would feel that you, you might reduce that risk of spinal headache yep. a little bit. Yep. But it's also such a fine needle you feel you're putting, doing the less harm. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're having to pass it multiple times because you're failing. And if that's the case, then just upgrade. Yep. Yeah. Or downgrade to 25 gauge. <laughs> <laughs> what was well, your practice, Roger? I use both needles. I must admit, uh, I find that um, if women are, have a higher BMI um, and their back's a bit more challenging, mm. I, I tend to default to the 25 gauge because it's less flimsy. Uh, it sort of just goes in the direction that you're inserting yeah. it, if that makes sense. So it's hard to describe. Uh, Although there may be a risk of it shearing and breaking. Because it is, it is a flimsy needle. The twenty-seven, the twenty-seven gauge, gauge yeah. yeah, potentially. So I use a, I use a twenty-five gauge mm. in situations like that. But in slim, easy to palpate anatomy, women who are um, otherwise look like they're going to be quite an easy insertion mm. because you can feel the anatomy, you know where you're going, and then and it's not a long way in because they're slim. Then um, yeah, twenty-seven gauge is fine as well. There Just is a bit of a learning curve, isn't there? Yeah, there is no. And also, don't be impatient injecting through the twenty-seven gauge. You know, the last really frustrating when you've got a syringe of drugs that you're trying to administer and it sprays everywhere, and you're not sure how much went in and how much mm-hmm. didn't, because um, it is harder to inject through down a twenty-seven mm-hmm. gauge. You have to be a lot slower and more deliberate. Mm-hmm. Have you found that? Yeah, I think with time though you get used. To, and I, I get remember, used to it, yeah. you know, that, that I was not good with twenty-seven gauge needles, and I remember when I. Yeah. came back to this hospital and all these 27-gauge yep. needles had appeared. So, yep. well, you know, let's get rid of these. Yep. This is crazy. And now I'm using them the whole time. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I think, I, I, I personally, I think it's 
it's a skill that if you do, yeah, for those kind of cases, slim, mm. um, yep. palpable anatomy, give it a go, and and all of a sudden it just seems like a pretty straightforward thing to do. Yep. Okay, um, let's talk about the. But a twenty-five gauge needle is completely fine. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Let's talk about the um, drugs that we use for a, for a single shot spinal for a, for an elective caesarean. Sure. Okay, so standard sort of? my standard prescription is um, between. 2.5 mils of heavy marcaine um, with about 15 micrograms of fentanyl, um, 100 micrograms of intrathecal morphine. Um, and then in a certain population, I may choose to um, add clonidine in. So I would use maybe anywhere between 15 to 30 micrograms of clonidine. Um, and that's, but that's not a, a common thing. My, my common is always, um, is usually uh, um, heavy marcaine, fentanyl, and intrathecal morphine. And I adjust the dose of. There seems to be the, there's a bit of a meme out there about <laughs> figuring out. You know, there's all these we have, um, humorous formulas to calculate the dose of heavy marking. Point five percent heavy marking. <laughs> and the, the, there's time. Usually, it's times by zero. Add two point five <laughs> or something like that. Yep. But I, yeah, I must admit, I usually use two point four, two point five mils, except when they're short. Or how do you adjust? Like people of short stature, I think you do have to go down a little bit, but. Um, what, what's your approach, Matt? Yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah. I would use 2.2 to 2.5. Yeah. And um, preterm, earlier gestation, go go higher. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yep. Which I think has caught, caught a few of us out in mm-hmm. the past, including myself. Um, I've rarely used anything more than 2.5 for an obstetric yeah. patient. In fact, I'm not sure if I ever have. Yeah. And, and if, if people are extreme stature, like really short yeah. or really tall, I do a CSC. Exactly. Yeah. Because <clears throat> someone is like six foot four, I'm like, I'm going to do a CSC because mm-hmm. is this going to be enough? If someone's like four foot three, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm going to use a really small dose because yeah, I, and I, think, I, I don't think want to stop breathing. That's so important. Tall stature yeah. patients can, can get a bum deal sometimes. That we Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, the yep. clon- just to talk about the clonidine. Yeah. So um, that's, I think that's like an adjunct that you could, cons- if you are familiar with it and you're doing a lot of obstetric anesthesia, you, you know which situations to use it in. But most people starting out should probably not be thinking about that. Yeah. Um, the downside, uh, I, I added in, I must admit, I added in people who have got hypertensive disorders, you know, severe preeclampsia and things like that, because um, I think it helps. And the downside of hypotension, you know, six hours later, um, is not really an issue in them. But but there's a there's that's a bit more open to debate. There's a lot of people who have different opinions about that. Yeah. Um, I think be mindful that every drug you add to your mix is another yeah, potential true. medication error. Yeah, and the, right. the intrathecal space is it's a fairly unforgiving place to inject things. Yep. And so that's an important point. So yeah. Yeah. So check your drugs carefully. Be very careful. About the cheating of drugs. I know yep. those personal experiences that you don't. Especially you don't want to get that wrong. <laughs> Matt's laughing at me. So um, we've all had uh, incidences. In, in, um, and there's yeah. some um, hospitals which um, it caught me out just recently oh. have 200 micrograms of intrathecal morphine or 500 micrograms of intrathecal morphine. Here yeah. at King Eddie's, we've only got 500, and therefore I know I'm only going to need 0.2. But um, you know, at another yeah. hospital, the the nurse gave me. Uh, the 200 and if I hadn't had, had a look I would have ended up giving the patient a very, you know, which I don't think is a, is the end of the world but I would have ended up giving her quite a, a minute dose of intrathecal morphine yeah yeah, I think really be mindful of yeah. that and 
Okay. We're going to talk about um, post-operative analgesia at the end. Matt's just getting an important phone call from the <laughs> stockbroker. Buy, <laughs> buy, sell. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I think there's, and there is a bit of debate. There's different opinions about even neuraxial morphine. Um, yep. So whether you need that or not, um, but it's but it is a, around the world probably the most common form of post-operative analgesia for people having cesareans. Yeah, and in quite a lot of guidelines yeah written by expert groups yep um they you know long-acting intrathecal opioids are recommended yep but there are there, there are ways of avoiding them but i would say it's, it's a pretty standard mix. yeah it's pretty standard but you'll be there's definitely there are problems with them you'll see people who don't use them and, yep. and they have their reasons as well um okay testing the block so what happens so you do your block and you lie them down um we'll go back and Oh, should, actually, should we talk about the differences when you're doing a combined spinal epidural now, and then and then epidural top up, and then we'll talk about testing the blocks. Okay. Yeah. Now this is a bigger topic than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> How much tape have you got in your podcast? <laughs> I think this machine's got an SD card that can hold like 400 hours or something. So. Oh, okay. I don't oh, want right. to be talking okay, to yeah. a <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What are the main differences when you're doing a combined spinal epidural? So, as the name suggests, yeah, it's a um, a combined spinal epidural. So through a two e needle, and um, it's got a spinal needle through, which is in in our institution we've got sixteen twenty sevens. Is that correct? Sixteen gauge two e's, twenty seven gauge spinal needles, and twenty six gauge spinal needles too. Okay. Yep. Um, and so once you've um, once you've made a hole through the, the dura and you've in, in, injected your spinal medication um, you are, or your spinal mix, then you're going to thread a catheter in like you would uh, a normal um, epidural catheter. Um, obviously, you need to also check that catheter to make sure there's no um, CSF or blood through that catheter before you're going to use that catheter. Yep. Um, and that's your combined and spinal o- And often we don't use the catheter. But it's, the, no. it's, it's either there for... Insurance. If the block, you know, we've got say someone who extreme sort of height or um, who's had, who's had a failed block or weight or has had a failed block in the past, and you want to have like an insurance policy, so you might want to administer medication down that j- to augment the block during the case. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you might want to use that epidural catheter for analgesia postoperatively. Yeah. One little thing, because um, a lot of people uh, will be used to inserting a two needle for an epidural. Um, yeah, to, you know, to place an epidural is that I tell um, people when you're finding loss of resistance, usually with saline, as soon as you get that loss of resistance, stop injecting the saline because you you don't want to fill up the epidural space with saline and then you're passing a spinal needle in mm-hmm. and um, you get some fluid back in it and you're like, oh, is it the saline? Of the eight, is, it, is that from the 8 mils of saline I just injected or is that, from, is that CSF? Mm-hmm. You want to just like, I've found the loss of resistance, stop. Such do the spinal because uh, then you put the spinal needle in it's not very f- you know you find the CSF it is CSF it's not something else and the spinal works and then you can go back and inject that saline to try and get any veins out of the way so you don't have an intravenous accumulation mm-hmm. but often as you have this sort of uh, ingrained uh, response where as soon as you feel a loss of resistance you sort of empty your loss of resistance syringe to try and get open everything up mm-hmm. but yep. is there anything else that you do slightly differently no, like I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool technique, isn't it? I think. Yeah, um, it is. A good until technique. it doesn't work. Absolutely. <laughs> and and yeah. it's it's got some frustrations. 
Um, yeah. But if it all goes well, especially, you know, using one of these needle-through-needle needle locking syringes, which unfortunately won't be available with the yeah, uh, non-Lua, the NR fit, um, for the time being at least. Um, but it's, you know, it's, I think it's a very cool technique, but yeah. there are some issues with it. For example, you know, getting a clear flu back, which isn't CSF, yep. as you described, Roger. Um, you know, getting into the spinal space, giving the drugs, and then you put your epidural catheter in and it causes paresthesia or you can't thread it or it goes into a blood vessel. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden the patient's now got a spinal block on board but sitting up while you're trying to sort the catheter out. Yeah. So it, it can be can yeah. be challenging sometimes. Yeah, and you have to make a decision in that case there. Sh- shall we just, like, abandon mm. trying to get an epidural catheter in and lie them down and make sure the spinal works? Which is my default most yeah, of the time. Unless you're putting a catheter in to prolong yeah. the block yeah. for the, yeah, yeah. if that's or the reason you put a catheter re- in. Yeah, or if there's a really good reason why you really think you need an epidural catheter, and then you're going to mm. might if, say, for example, might have to faff around and reinsert the two needles to try and get a catheter in, and then you know that spinal block that you've just inserted is um, you know s- settling in around their yeah. <laughs> around their perineum, not mm. around their. <laughs> Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So there's no right or wrong answer, sadly. But I think you, you have to make that decision sort of in a timely way. Yeah. Um, I think you can't keep trying and then decide we're not going to use an epidural. Yep. Um, okay. But yeah, so there can be some frustrations. But having said <coughs> that, it, it's it's a good technique for those indications we <coughs> mentioned. So short statures, prolonged potential surgery, cardiac disease, where you want to just give a small dose of the spinal block and then incrementally increase the epidural. Okay. Or for pain relief afterwards. Yep. And don't forget, you can also use your CSC kit as a, uh, well, you know, when you're when you're struggling to to cite your spinal, like a single shot spinal, you can even just use your CSC kit as your um, yeah, to, as to a way of finding exactly because if you can't yeah you can't feel the anatomy and you're just yep. you're struggling to get a, the spinal and using a CSC kit uh, yep. can help. Yeah. Um, but there are there are I got to say advantages to a de novo spinal where you just stick a needle in. You've put no fluid into that space apart from the local anaesthetic and you yep. see clear fluid coming back. You know you're in the right spot. You know you're in the right spot again until it doesn't work and again when you've <laughs> been doing it long enough. I'm sure all of us yep. have had that experience. Everyone listening to this podcast is like, God, it sounds like it's pretty dodgy. <laughs> These guys done it before. And over the years, you know, I've come into work and there'll be a box of heavy marker in and the overnight anaesthetist will say, well, this clearly isn't working, you know, because <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> I did a spinal last night and nothing happened. But we've all experienced it, and yeah. to my knowledge, they've never found any no. deficiencies in the local anaesthetic. But, you know, blocks fail. Yep. And I think we'll come on to that in a moment. Thanks, everyone. Join us in the next episode where we continue our discussion on the basics of neuroxial anaesthesia for caesarean section. You've been listening to the Obstetric Anaesthesia Basics podcast series, a short podcast series designed for anaesthesia trainees new to obstetric anaesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anaesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anaesthesia. Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals, geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening.